Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for being with me. We have our weekly look at uh, Catholic stories around the world with Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who is executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EW10 News. He's also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Matthew uh, wrote and published the first English-language biography of Pope Francis. He's also uh, editor of the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Bunsen, M-A-T-T. And uh, you can hear him on Register Radio, Saturdays at 4 in the afternoon, Sundays at 11 in the morning on Ave Maria Radio. Matthew, good to have you back here. Thank you. Always a privilege to be with you. I guess I want to jump to this uh, Bishop Paprocki story. Uh, yes, because this is this is unusual. At least in my experience, this is unusual, where you have a a bishop, U.S. bishop, uh, actually penning an essay, <laughs> which seems to uh, m- make clear that uh, a fellow bishop has at least been imagining uh, heresies. So, talk to me. Set this up for me, and I understand that he's going to be uh, on the air tonight. Yes, he will. He'll be a guest on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo uh, this evening. Very good. So obviously this will be a topic of conversation. Yeah, I'm sure. So tell me, tell me about uh, what the bishop did. And, uh, you know, people say he's got Cardinal McElroy in his sights. Well, as, as uh, you and I have uh, already talked, uh, Cardinal Robert McElroy of uh, San Diego, who is uh, one of the newest of the cardinals, he was installed last August by Pope Francis, wrote in America Magazine an essay uh, in which uh, he basically calls for what he describes as radical inclusion of those identifying as LGBT, uh, women and others in the church, focusing especially, though, on uh, so-called LGBT and those who are divorced and remarried and not living chastely. And in that essay, uh, the cardinal calls for what he describes as a Eucharistic theology that invites all of the baptized to the table of the Lord rather than a theology of Eucharistic coherence that multiplies barriers to the grace and gift of the Eucharist. So this was uh, reiterated uh, further in a podcast that he did, and then a subsequent essay was just actually, I think, posted today by American Magazine. So in the midst of all of this, was an essay, uh, sort of in reply to this, from Bishop Paprocki in First Things. Uh, and the opening title says, the first line from this says it all. It says, imagine if a cardinal of the Catholic Church were to publish an article in which he condemned a theology of Eucharistic coherence, etc., etc. Or what if a cardinal of the Catholic Church were to state publicly that homosexual acts are not sinful and same-sex union should be blessed by the Church? He says he basically is saying that until recently it would be hard to imagine any successor of the apostles making what he describes as heterodox statements. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very forceful language. Now, while he does not name Cardinal McElroy specifically in his essay, it is obvious who he is referring to. Right. <clears throat> you know, this is this again. There's a problem because Cardinal McElroy uses languages like you know radical inclusion. Um, but we don't know what that means. I mean, exactly what does it look like? Does he want to open communion? Should, should, we, should we decide that uh, uh, the church drops its distinctions between mortal and venial sin? Exactly what is he talking about? 
Well, that's really the the, the question here. Uh, the, the language tends always to be rather euphemistic. Yeah. Now, in his um, sort of response essay uh, that was just posted in American Magazine, uh, he goes through what he describes as uh, his desire to wrestle with some of these criticisms that, as he puts it, that I might contribute to the ongoing dialogue on this sensitive question. And I am struck, uh, as uh, one would expect, that uh, the cardinal is very polite. Uh, Bishop Paprocki is very polite. Yeah. Uh, but they clearly could not be farther apart uh, in their – not just interpretation of things, but in their entire worldview. And I think that's one of the things that really is quite striking uh, in Bishop Paprocki's essay and, and then in this response from Cardinal McElroy here where – both of them are trying to establish some claim to uh, the Eucharist. Uh, one is what uh, Cardinal McElroy goes back to this idea of uh, that the Eucharist is given to us as a profound grace in our conversion to discipleship. And then he quotes, as they often are want to do, Pope Francis, that uh, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. And then he argues that barring disciples from the, that grace blocks one of the principal pathways to Christ to reform their lives and accept the gospel ever more fully. Bishop Paprocki, I think, standing clearly in uh, scripture and tradition, uh, is uh, arguing, again, very forcefully. Uh, and he cites canon law in this. He cites uh, scripture in this that McElroy's statements on the Eucharist are, quote, contrary to a truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, there was a debate in uh, Reformed circles in the United States going back uh, two centuries. It was all over, over the idea of whether the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the question was, well, who, who uh, should have access to the Lord's table? And there were those in these circles which were arguing that, well, you have to have, be— authentically converted. You had to be one of the elect. You had to bring forth the fruits of repentance in order to have access to the Lord's table. And then there were those who were saying, no, 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 we need to be inclusive here, and anybody who wants to should come because the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. Mm-hmm. Now, that's that's <laughs> language outside the Catholic tradition. Right. But but increasingly less so. Right. And that's, and that's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's This is... When somebody makes a proposal of radical inclusion, it just seems fair to ask them, okay, exactly, put a, write it down. Tell me what that's going to look like. Don't just tell me that we want to provide medicine uh, for the sick. Uh, don't just tell me we want to give inspiration to the downtrodden here. We need to know who, how, how is the church going to admit people to receive the Eucharist? What are the, what's the criteria? If you can't right. give me criteria, then just throw the whole thing open, you know, and make it a matter of everybody's conscience. Yeah, I mean, it, it begs a series of questions. The first is, um, what is your belief in the Eucharist? Yep. Because we, we, I think we need to define that first very clearly. What do you believe the Eucharist is? Mm-hmm. Who is in the Eucharist. Yes. The yes. other uh, is 
how is this making us any different than, say, the the Church of England or the Episcopalian Church sure. or a number of other churches that have gone down this exact path? But then the other is, how is what you're proposing any different from what is now being proposed by the German Synodal Council, which Pope Francis has publicly denounced yeah. and has yeah. asked not to take that trip, not to go down this synodal path? So how is this different? And those are questions, I think, that really need to be answered as we're moving along here. Well, I was happy to see Bishop Paparaki address this very directly, and uh, this is good. In my mind, this is good. I'm glad that they're very polite. I think that's good, too. Uh, But uh, these kind of things should be out on the table. Uh, Euphemisms uh, can—there are times when they're appropriate, and other times they just obscure— what the real issues are. Um, well, that's right. And, and I think um, in church history, we have certainly seen uh, occasions where it ha- was absolutely essential for the bishops to speak out, as Bishop Paprocki is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, for example, of uh, the fourth century with the Arian heresy. Yes. We did not see uh, St. Athanasius uh, refusing to speak because he didn't want to sound mean right. or that uh, we have to, as bishops, have unity. No, he, he spoke forcefully and endured exile six times yeah. uh, in his time as a bishop of Alexandria precisely for speaking the truth. And it wasn't his perceived truth. We know it was the truth. And it is heartening, I think, to see a number of bishops now standing up uh, to speak out against what they see is, I think, something that's very, very confusing to the faithful. But it's also, again, setting these markers for what is potentially coming down the road with the Synod in October in Rome and then the 24 Synod also in Rome. So we've got Bishop George Beitzing in Germany there um, telling us that uh, he, in fact— is taking the Vatican's concerns about the German synodal way seriously. Uh, it's not clear what he means by that, though. Well, that's right. Yeah, uh, he is saying that uh, essentially they take it seriously, uh, concerns, and, and one has to put air quotes around the word, mm-hmm. uh, but they are certainly not in any way hesitating from pushing ahead uh, very aggressively with their plans to complete the work of this, uh, the German synodal path and the creation of a German synodal council, which has been now one of the major sticking points uh, that would essentially be a, a committee, a kind of politburo uh, that would run the German church that has no standing, certainly in church teaching, in canon law, yeah. uh, in certainly the, the traditions of the church. And, and is a direct violation, I think, of the rightful authority of individual bishops. Uh, yeah, that's they right. can say all they want that the diocese will not be impacted. It's up to the individual bishops. But we all know that the pressure that we're already seeing brought to bear against the German bishops is so intense. Uh, and I think this is going to be what they see as a permanent structure uh, on the national diocesan and parish level uh, to sort of impose their view on this. And one of the key teachings here is on the Eucharist of much of the same language that we're seeing here in the United States on the things like the ordination of women uh, and a complete reimagining of the the priesthood 
and the utter demolition, I think, of proper authority in the life of the church. Yeah. Many people don't understand the difference between the authority of the local bishop and the authority of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Could you give us like a 60-second distinction here? Right. Well, so the individual, this is an ordinary who wields ordinary jurisdiction over a portion of the church's flock. And that is a bishop uh, who is appointed as a shepherd. He is the focus of unity uh, in the life of a diocese. An Episcopal conference is simply a gathering of bishops together that has an advisory capacity, but we can get more into this, but very little authority to wield over bishops themselves. Yeah. Bishops themselves are part of the divine constitution of the church. Bishops' conferences are not. So That's right. <laughs> we'll come back, Matthew. Hold it there. We'll continue the conversation. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, my guest. Catholic topics from around the world, our topic. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EW10 News talking about a distinction that I think is lost on uh, many Catholics who don't spend a lot of time, you know, wondering about the internal operations of the institutional church. But um, we have the bishop of a diocese, uh, and then you've got this U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And there are lots of people who think, well, okay, a bishop is one— and when bishops get together, there are many, and if the many decide on something, that thereby obligates, by divine right, that bishop in his own diocese. That's completely wrong-headed. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and and uh, let's go back to the the, the German synod uh, in when it completed some of its first work. It had four pillars. It's worth remembering. It, it wanted to look at authority in the life of the church, uh, the role of women, uh, the issues of sexuality, and the priesthood. The first one they started with was on authority, and the first document that they published uh, essentially saw a, a, a path, as far as they were concerned, to the democratization of the church. And in there, it included a thing that. Uh, the group would vote and the expectation would then be immediate that the the group that lost and they had already stacked the deck so we already knew how this is going to go was expected to respect and accept the results of that vote. That really set the tone I think for everything that has followed this German synodal path as well as this synodal council, this permanent synodal council that they're going to just push ahead and create. Uh, to use what is essentially authoritarian, even totalitarian mechanisms uh, to bully and force uh, German Catholics and, I dare say, German bishops that, to right. accept whatever the findings are. Yeah, yeah. And we know what those are. Yeah. Because we've been reading the documents since. Yeah. So this is – it's important for us to remember that a bishop – is part of the divine constitution of the church. He is the ordinary of the diocese. Sometimes it's said, you know, the bishop is basically the pope in his own diocese. It's a little, it, it has the advantage of being clear, but at the same time, it's a little overstates it a bit. But 
local bishop is the authority. No bishop from outside that diocese can come in and force that bishop to do anything. No dozen bishops from outside the diocese can come in and force that bishop to do anything, right? Well, that's right. Now, uh, the Holy Father, of course, can. Yes, uh, We of have seen a number yeah. of visitations uh, in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. Uh, but those are considered even today to be fairly extraordinary events. Yeah. The, the One of the great debates that has taken place among canonists uh, has been over the role and function of Episcopal conferences and what sort of authority they actually have. And uh, as we have seen with the sex abuse crisis, the, the Dallas norms, the uh, essential charter and all of the Dallas charter and essential norms and, and all of that – a bishop who is determined um, to ruin to rule his diocese as he sees fit uh, can do so, and so there there were even one or two bishops who never really accepted the the Dallas Charter and the essential norms. Yeah, even uh, on a topic, even on a topic like this, which is so controversial, you would think you'd have complete agreement. Yet, Bishop, as I remembered, anyways, uh, Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz of Lincoln said, "No, that's right. I've got. A, I have a. I prefer my way of handling it." That's right. Now, there are a number of documents that have explored this. There, there were assumptions or there were thoughts for a while that Pope Francis would expand, uh, perhaps even providing some sort of uh, wider authority to Episcopal conferences, but that really hasn't happened. Uh, I think he, he has moved really much toward the synodal, uh, the, this process of the Synod of Bishops in order to try to, to push ahead with his vision of synodality. Uh, partly because I think they recognize very quickly that in places like the United States, there simply are too many bishops who are not particularly happy uh, with some of the things that are being said by the Germans, for example. Uh, and as the USCCB has uh, demonstrated over the last years, there is some pretty rancorous disagreement among the bishops, on, especially on things like the Eucharist yeah. uh, and this idea of Eucharistic coherence. Uh, the, what they euphemistically refer to as the sort of weaponization of the Eucharist. But we're seeing this now play out very publicly uh, in this back and forth between Bishop Paprocki, and I think there are going to be others, and Cardinal McElroy. And on McElroy's side, too, we're already seeing that uh, there are those who are, are coming to his defense, or at least trying to argue that this is in keeping with what Pope Francis has said. Now, if we look at Pope Francis' statements to the Germans, it's very clear uh, that Pope Francis is not on board with what is happening in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's uh, jump to uh, another topic uh, here. Uh, the Albany Diocese is limiting Latin masses following new guidance from the Vatican. Uh, this is, the story is a few days old. But uh, talk to us about w what this is about. I mean, I think people are confused. Uh, you have a mass that was celebrated as the standard uh, until roughly 1968, and there's the Roman Missal of 1962, which was apparently, um, you know, superseded in some way. Uh, many people wanted the freedom to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, or the Roman Missal of 1962. And uh, under uh, Pope, Pope Benedict XVI uh, made an effort to make sure that there was generous availability of that Mass. Pope Francis has acted 
it appears, to limit access to this traditional mass. And in Albany, we've now got uh, at least a temporary ban on the traditional Latin mass at two parishes. So what are they actually complying with by shutting or banning the use of this 1962 missile? Yes. Well, so what uh, we have seen is the next step uh, in what the, the groundwork that was laid uh, by Pope Francis in 2021 uh, with Traditiones Custodes, which put a clamp uh, on the celebration of the so-called traditional Latin Mass. Essentially, uh, the celebration of Mass in accordance with the, uh, the, the Roman Missal or Missale Romanum of 1962. We had a subsequent document from Pope Francis essentially elaborating or articulating the reasoning behind uh, Traditiones Custodes. And mm-hmm. as, as you and I agreed at the time, I think had he come out with this document first and then gone with uh, sort of lowering the hammer with uh, the motu proprio, yeah. I think the, the rollout and the reception might have been very different. Mm-hmm. Because Pope Francis in in that document and also in fairness in Traditiones Custodes also talked about the severe uh, aberrations of the liturgy of even the Novus Ordo. Yeah. What we have seen is that a number of bishops, uh, not just in the United States but around the world, uh, found what I would argue are very creative and pastoral ways uh, to keep the Latin Mass going in their diocese despite the obvious restrictions that had been placed in the use of uh, parishes and and parish churches. Uh, But then there was also the question of newly ordained priests or recently ordained priests being taught how to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass mm-hmm. because as, the, the, as anyone knows, the, the Usus Antiquor or the traditional Latin Mass requires a lot of steps uh, and, and it's what everyone thinks of the liturgy. It's, it's, it is something that you really have to learn and master as you would any other of yes. these beautiful rites of the church. That's right. So in reply to a number of questions, and uh, it's, it's an open question, I will say, as to how many questions there were, uh, a new document, a rescriptum, which is essentially a kind of reply or clarification, uh, was sent out uh, under Cardinal Roach, who is the head of the dicastery, the Cardinal Arthur Roach, who is a prefect for the dicastery for divine worship and the discipline of sacraments essentially issuing a clarification. That's what this rescriptum is, and it had two key parts. The first is that all dispensations must be approved by the Vatican for the celebration, and essentially ordered any bishop who had already issued the dispensations to inform his office, which will then have the authority to evaluate individual cases as to whether or not the Latin Mass can be celebrated. The other, and this is the one that uh, I was a little surprised at, uh, was a reiteration of the fact that priests who are ordained after a certain date, that's the issue of Traditiones Custodes in, in 2021, um, you have to have very clear permission for that to take place. So on the one hand, we're seeing a further clamping down of the traditional Latin Mass, but on the other, it's a reminder uh, about how restrictive they want to be on the education on the formation of priests who can actually celebrate the Mass, I would argue that in some ways you can have a a bishop who approaches this very creatively and finds ways to have this Mass celebrated for his traditional Latin Mass attending flock. But the reality is that if you are not teaching any priests how to celebrate this, 
you are on a path inevitably toward the extinction of the celebration of the Mass. Of course, yes, that's right. Um, what was Pope Francis's uh, rationale for limiting uh, use of the 1962 Missal? So the argument was, uh, and this was supposedly based on a survey that was done um, of bishops around the world, as to how a Summorum Pontificum uh, was received and how many problems did or did not occur or were occurring uh, within their flock. Uh, for those who celebrate traditional Latin Mass, are they, for example, creating divisions within right. parishes? Are they also uh, obdurately denying the validity of the Second Vatican Council? So the, the aim of Pope Francis uh, was to find a way to limit uh, the, the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, uh, but again, at the same time, to refocus, I think that was his stated goal, uh, attention on the Novus Ordo as the, the Mass that was given to us the mm -hmm. argument is, by the Second Vatican Council that was um, promulgated by Pope Paul VI. And as Francis again noted, uh, that at times is not celebrated particularly well. Right. And so he, in that letter that accompanied eventually Traditionis Custodes, he talks about the, the beauty of the Mass, the celebration, but he uses that great phrase, the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebration. That we, that we have to do this right and properly. And he was seeing, I think, a from his standpoint, a breakdown of unity on some parishes, the creation of sort of quasi-second church, uh, the denial of the Second Vatican Council, and then uh, the, the celebration of the Novus Order being done very poorly. It's a huge argument and debate uh, as to whether the average person who goes to traditional Latin Mass thinks enough about the Second Vatican Council actually to deny it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, this is, you know, from my, from my point of view, I've never understood entirely why, uh, in certain dioceses anyways, you, it was, you could not find uh, a mass, according to the Missal of 1962. Um, it just, it's always struck me as a strange kind of leadership um, it's almost a lack of confidence uh, in the 68 Mass that they have right. to restrict the 62 Mass. Well, you said it beautifully, Al, once in one of our conversations, that is this not uh, providing a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist? Yeah, yeah. Matthew, thanks so much. Uh, great talking with you again. Wish we a had more time. privilege, as always. <laughs> God bless. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Dr. Matthew Bunsen will have uh, lots of stories that we didn't get to. 